Good evening, everyone. Three days to pass overnight, Lela Seder, 72 hours or less. And uh, yesterday I made a lecture about the Agadah. That was part three. Remember last week we made part one and two? Yesterday was part three, and today will be part four. Part four will not conclude the Agadah. I'm still very far from finishing it. The way it goes, maybe I need 10 parts. But better half than nothing, right? Anyway, we won't get to it. In the night of the Seder, there's so many Kiddushet Torah that by the time what you speak the first night and what you speak in the second night, it will cover more than enough. And as all the same, we'll see when we're gonna finish it. Yesterday, I arrived to the part of the Haggadah that it says, Vaishma Shemet Kolenu. I explain what's the difference between Shava'a, Kol, Tfilah, Tse'aka, all these words that we have in the Torah. In modern Hebrew, no one will know to tell you the difference. But in the ancient Hebrew, the Lashon HaKodesh, the language of the Torah, Every word is unique. Every word has something unique about it. And if you one day learn the uniqueness of every word, you'll be very surprised how many words you thought it's one thing and in the end it means something else. Even though it could be similar, but it's still something else. Okay, anyway, so that's where we end yesterday. Vayishma Hashem et kolenu. ויער אלוקים את בני ישראל, כן? אין? וידע אלוקים. השם knows that we suffer, we scream to him from the bottom of the heart. ואת עמלנו אלו הבנים. עמל, עמל means very hard work. It could be hundreds of different things. עמל. You plow the, the ground, it's עמל. You cut fruits all day from the tree, it's amal. You carry heavy things on your back, it's amal. So from thousands of different options, how do we know that we are talking here about raising children? So you see the Chachamim, they know, even when you see a word that is a general, they know exactly, specifically what he's talking about. Et amalenu elo elu abanim, shenemar, kol aben ha'ilod ha'erorat ha'shlichu. The Amal is the children that we raised, right? We Yagea. What does it mean, Yagea? It means we got very tired raising them. They take away all our strength. And in the end, we expect to see profit from this Amal, from this investment. We put everything into them, right? So when we came to Mitzrayim after raising these children and then they took them and killed them, what did we left with? So much effort and no results. This is the Amal. Lechatzenu, lachatz, means dachak. Dachak means makom dachuk. Dachuk means a place that is crowded, narrow. There's not enough room. It goes in with pressure, meaning we don't have space. זה הדחק. What does it mean, דחק? ראיתי את הלחץ אשר מצרים לוחצים אותם. 
that the Egyptians are pressuring us. In the beginning, they gave us straw to make bricks. Then they took away the straw. You have to go make your own bricks. Makes it harder. And then they killed the children. And makes it harder by the day. Like they're enjoying, they're enjoying what they're doing. Not only like Hashem forced them to, to punish us, as he told Abraham Avinu, that's what's going to happen. They're enjoying what they're doing. Sometimes it's really not in your hand. You have to do the job and that's it. Like I give you an example. The Israeli soldiers, when they had to go and move Jewish families from their homes and give it to the Hamas, besides the liberal lefties that hate Jews and love Arab murderers, besides them, every normal Jew, it broke his heart. Soldiers were doing it while they were crying. But what are they going to do? They put them in jail. You don't want to do the job. I'm giving you an order. You're not going to do it. You're six, six months in jail. So they know, hey, listen, if I do it or not, it's going to get done anyway. What's the point of sitting in jail? So they were doing it while, while their heart was breaking. But the Egyptians, not like that. They're enjoying every minute, like the Nazis. Enjoying what they see. It's a big difference. Why? Sometimes it came to your hand. You're very upset. You're very upset that you're the one who has to do it. You don't really have a choice. But over here, they definitely had a choice. No one told them to go and murder kids. Why are you becoming a soldier? Who told you to join the SS? Why do you want to be a Nazi soldier when you know what the, what the army does? Right? So we move on. Beyad Chazaka, with a strong hand, Zua Devil. Again, it can be thousands of things, Yad Chazaka. But the Agada Chazal teaching us Dever. What is Dever? Plague. A plague, like an epidemic or something. What kind of? Bezroa Netuya. There's Yad Chazaka, strong hand. Zroa Netuya means high arm, meaning like someone picks up his arm all the way up before he punches someone and bury him in the ground. So the higher the arm goes, the deeper it will go into the ground, right? So that's what it means. Be'yad chazaka, strong fist, and at the same time, it's a very serious strike. Zoacherev. Now let's explain it a little bit further. Amaka ba be'echad mishne ofanim. When Hashem hit a person, it can come in two different ways. One is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu remove his Ashgacha, his supervision. Just remove his supervision. Meaning, I am protecting you every minute. I'm closing my eyes now for five minutes. Let's see what's going to happen to you. I did not do anything to you. I did not drown you. Like a father that takes his little kid to the pool. He takes him to the deep water. And he keeps, every time he drowns, he brings him up. The father obviously is not drowning the kid. But what happens if the father now has a call and he speaks on the phone five minutes? What's going to happen to the kid? He's going to drown and die, right? Now, can you say that the father drowned his kid? Not exactly. What did the father do? Negligence. Or removed his supervision from the kid. I did not do anything bad to him. I only stopped to help him as I was doing momentarily. That's one way Hashem punish a person. That's, by the way, what the Torah say about the Holocaust in Parashat Vayelech. <clears throat> the Torah 
speaks in two different languages. One language is, I will put you in the hand of very cruel goyim. I will torture you badly. That's one hand, meaning I initiated it. But the Torah also speaks in a different way. At that day, aster, aster I'm only going to close my eyes, that's it. I won't supervise you, I won't watch over you like I've been doing until now. Meaning, once I stop protecting you from the plans of the Goyim, then you'll see what can happen to you. That's it, that's all. A few years, Hashem closed his eyes. Now you begin to understand why the most horrible things in the history happened in millions of times, not once or twice. And then everybody asks, where is God? Where is God? Where was God in the Holocaust? Where, where, where? Technically, you can be safe by saying he wasn't there. Of course, he's everywhere, of course. But the supervision, the, the, the protection level that we were used to until that day was gone. And you saw the results, unfortunately. So, one way Hashem removed his supervision, removed his ashgachato, and the tragedy come by itself. Meaning, I give you an example. If you put chickens in your backyard and you make a fence around it, and you have all these wolves come in the morning, they try to eat the chickens, right? The roosters. What really protect them? The fence. What happens if you open the gate? You open the gate. In two minutes, it's going to be a bloodshed over there. That's it, right? So technically, you didn't bring the wolf to kill the chickens, or you didn't take the chicken and fed it to the wolf. All you do, all you did is you remove the fence. That's it. It's obvious what's going to happen when you open up the gate. This is exactly what's happening. Hashem is constantly watching and protecting, like we say in the Torah, Hashem never sleeps, he doesn't need a rest. God forbid, imagine if he needed rest, when he would go to sleep here and there, what would happen to us? In one hour that Hashem would go to sleep, it would be the end of us. You understand? It's no time to... Sometimes one minute... By the way, just in case you don't understand, with Hashem... There is no option to rest. Why? Because the energy, the divine energy, move all the atoms in the world. The atomic movements of the electrons and neutrons, all the movements of the atoms in material, it's all the hand of Hashem. <clears throat> if Hashem will rest for one minute, meaning the energy that moves and maintains the creation, He will rest for one second, one, five seconds, ten seconds, you know what would happen? What would happen if Hashem stopped energizing the creation for five seconds? What would happen? Who knows? The world not only will be destroyed and all people will die and nothing will be left. The entire earth will come to a size of a gum. You know these red gums? This is what the world will become. Size of a quarter. Everything you see, buildings, mountains, rivers, oceans, it's all an illusion. It doesn't really exist. It's a movement of the atoms. i give you an example. You see now my finger, right? The finger takes half an inch. It's half an inch wide, right? 
But if I move it very fast, very, very fast, right? A million times a second, how wide my finger will become? If I move it so fast like this, it's going to be an optical mistake. You think that my, uh, my finger is very wide, like 10 inches, but it's only half an inch. Why it looks like 10 inches? Because it moves so fast, so it looks like a surface, like it's, it's really 10 inches. Now, if it will move a billion times a second, from one side to the earth to the other side, hundreds of thousands of kilometers in a second, it will move so fast, it would look like the size of this material, it's the size of an earth, which is a huge ball. But in reality, it's all an illusion. There's really nothing there. It's a very little amount of material with very fast movement. That's, that's the way it is, this whole world. So if you see a huge building in Manhattan, in reality, it's smaller than the point of the pencil. In reality. But it moves so fast all the time that this is what gives us this idea that it's such a massive mass here. Th hundreds of thousands of tons of material and all this weight and all this Hashem created in such a way that everything you see here, it's all an illusion. Just like a fan. You know, when the fan goes, when the fan goes very fast, it looks like a whole circle. But everybody knows it's four arms. Right? There's no really circle here. But it turns so fast that it looks like really a ball. You understand? So this is it. So if Hashem removes his energy from the creation, it's like Indian bread. You saw Indian bread? It looks like a big balloon. And you make one hole with your finger. You make one hole in Indian bread. It shoots steams out of the hole. Like this. And it shrinks. And then you press it a little bit, and it's much smaller than a quarter. But it looks so big, it's all an illusion. This is it. This is material, this is NASA. I obviously don't, I didn't come to teach you physics here, but just to give you the concept for, for us to understand what material is. So it's really unbelievable. All to begin with doesn't really exist. You understand? And this illusion, it's also temporary. Not only it doesn't really exist, what you think exists, it's also temporary. 78 years is going to be here. But the soul has a whole different league. It remains forever, for eternity. It never reduced. Nothing is changed. Like God is never changing. He doesn't go up, he doesn't go down, he doesn't become bigger or smaller or weaker or stronger. There's no such thing. So it's like very similar to the way the sun is. Nobody understands. The sun, thousands of years, it provides heat and light and energy. How long? And it does not reduce even by one degree. Not only that, they say that the heat is rising on earth. They say that it's becoming hotter every year, no? So where does it come from? There's no woods there that is burning. If you want to make fire, you need the fire to consume something. You need papers. Papers is wood, right? If you have a paper. How do you make pages of the, of, the, of the book? It comes from wood. It's a process with color and all this. So the fire needs to eat something. If you don't give food to the fire, it will die. What is the food of the sun? 
He doesn't burn wood. He doesn't burn paper. He doesn't need any. Imagine the amount of food you would have to give the sun just to light for one second. 15 million degrees Celsius. 22 million Fahrenheit. When we have 100 degrees, we die here. We can't breathe. Right? 100 degrees. 22 million. 22 million degrees. Do you understand what I'm saying here? 22 million. Not for one second or five or ten seconds. For thousands of years. Where does it come from? The answer? Clear miracle. Imagine now you make fire on Lagba Omer. Soon it's Lagba Omer. You make fire on the beach like they do in Israel. Lagba Omer, hundreds of fire everywhere. So you take 20 pieces of wood, two by four, from Home Depot. You make it like a shape of a, of a triangle like this. You light it, and the fire goes very high. Everybody knows in one hour nothing will be left. Once it eats the wood, everything collapses and becomes ashes. Imagine now it stays like this, one week, two weeks, one month, one year, five years. What will happen in the world? Thousands of people will come and all day bow down to the fire. It's God, it cannot be. What is the fire is living on? It's not catching to anything. So this is unbelievable how this ball of fire, which is a thousand times bigger than earth or more, in this whole world, big, huge ball of fire, beautiful, round, nice, is constantly producing heat and light and never ever reduced. Do you, do you understand <coughs> what we're talking about here? Not only that, that the earth was placed in the exact place in the relationship between the earth and the sun, the earth is in the only place where it can give life to people. Everywhere else, we would either burn or freeze. It had to be where it is, from unlimited amount of options. There's only one option where we can live, and that's the option that came through, which obviously you see that it can never happen by itself, like some fools are trying to claim. So one way to punish is just to remove my supervision and my protection from you. The other way to punish a person is that Hashem actually initiates the damage. Initiate the damage, meaning you walk on the street and he sends a wave of wind and he breaks a big tree and it falls on a person's head and kills him. Here, there was no removal of my supervision from you. I actually created the damage, a hazard that kill a person. That's already active damage. So one is passive damage, meaning I stop to protect you and nature already killed you. Second, I actually initiate the damage on a person, meaning I strike an attack. I strike an attack. That's what we say in Haggadah. We say, but we don't know what we say. Be'yad chazaka netuya. The plague is coming in two different ways. It's, it's written in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. I hid my face from them, 
and the goyim will eat them up. That's the Holocaust and many other tragedies. או שניתן כוח למשחית לנקום. או השם send a typhoon, a hurricane, tsunami, and he directed to a place where he want people to pay the price. So that's already an active damage. That's what we call in the Haggadah, הדבר והחרב. הדבר הבא בסילוק חיותו מהבורא. שבידו החזקה בכוחו לשלול חיות הנבראים ברגע אחד. Meaning, the minute I remove my supervision from you, immediately you cease to exist. You don't have an existence. Not to talk about all the other tragedies that can come. והחרב היא הנקמה באמצעות המשחיתים. חרב, it's like a sword. Someone is holding a sword and attack a person. This cherev, it's an expression here, it's a parable. What's the cherev? It can be the Satan, it can be a war, it can be terrorist, it can be many things. And this is what we call in the Haggadah, Bezroa Netuya. Zroa Netuya, it's mass, it's, it's an active attack of Hashem against someone. Ubeyad Chazaka, the Dever. Dever, like an epidemic, it spreads by itself, why? I stop my protection from you, and it comes by itself. This is the two explanations of this paragraph. Now, many people always ask for proofs that the Torah is the word of God. Proof to me, Rabbi, that the Torah is really the word of God, and the Rabbis didn't make it up. So obviously there are thousands of proofs. Here is one of them in the Haggadah. So if you have people in your table that are not Shomer Shabbat, not Shomer Shabbat. You know, yesterday I had a, a case in my lecture in Queens. We even have a witness to this, sitting right here with us. He was there yesterday. After the lecture, I spoke to a few people. Then I, then I had a couple that came to speak to me about Shlom Bait issue. It's a common problem today, unfortunately. But how did it happen? Listen to this. I had to take my kids to the dentist for their bracelet. And the dentist is in Queens. So therefore I have to be there at 3 p.m. Now I always make the last appointment at six. I don't want to waste time leaving Muncie at 1.30 in the afternoon. First, I don't want to take them from school in the middle. And second, I don't want to be here at three and wait until eight and until the lecture starts. But they told me, if you want it before Pesach, that's the only appointment, free. Okay, kasher avadnu avadnu. Okay, three, three. So I went there at three. Then I finished four thirty, five maybe. So I said to the kids, okay, we have time now until we have to pray minchar vit at seven, seven, ten. We have two hours time. We didn't eat anything, we were in a rush. Let's go eat something. Where you want to go, the kids begin to argue. I go over here, we go over there, these ones. So... On Shabbat, I promised my son, Bezrat Hashem, I owe you, he likes one restaurant, I owe you one time to go to that restaurant. Now I say, it's an opportunity to pay him what I promised. I say, okay, we go over here. No, yeah, listen, I promised him, we go. Okay, so I went there. Now when I was sitting there, one guy comes to me, Rabbi, my wife listened to your lectures every day, she became very religious. I see the guy doesn't have kippah. <laughs> Okay, can I take a picture with you? I want to send to my wife. Listen to the Ashgachah of Hashem. I say, of course. 
In the middle, when the food is mamash on the way to my mouth, I have to put it down, I take a picture, I'm used to it, no problem. I take a picture with him, he was very happy, he sends it to his wife. Now he has a friend with him in a restaurant. The friend says, he's embarrassed to ask from you, he wants to come speak with you about Shalom Bayit. When is the next time you're going to be around that he can come with his wife? I say, actually, tonight is perfect. I'm speaking right here. I finish around 10, 10, 15. Come. So he came with his wife. They came to the lecture. Now it's already 10, 20. I finish. I talk to people. By now it's 11 already. I sat down with him. Two, three, five minutes I speak to them. It comes out, this guy is not Shomer Shabbat. So I right away attacked him about Shabbat. How long did it take me to speak to him that he shook my hand and promised me, that's it, he's going to start keeping Shabbat. How long? Less than five minutes. Less than five minutes. He said, no problem, no problem. I promise, I promise, that's it. But there's a problem. What is the problem? I don't know what to say. Is Bukharian or is a barber? Usually it's a, it's a good marriage. So he's a barber. Barber cuts hair on Shabbat. He has a salon, whatever you want to call it, hair salon. Cuts hair. That's one of the worst scenes of Shabbat. It's directly the Oraita. You have scissors. You hold the hair. You go like this. One. You just broke Shabbat once. You cut again, twice, three. Each time it's new stoning. New stoning for the future to come. Death by stoning. One, two, three, five, ten, million times in his lifetime. Million times. Each time it's a, a whole different punishment. It's not one punishment for everything. Every time is a Chilul Shabbat, like lighting another cigarette and another one. In one haircut, it can be... 500 to 1,000 different stoning for $15. That's it. Once I, re I made him realize how much he gained, as opposed to how much he's going to pay, he got the point. What am I going to do? I cannot close the place on Shabbat. I have Goim working for me. So let the Goim work. Let's start with this. You don't go. Can you not go? Yeah, I cannot go. What, they're gonna, yeah, what's going to be with the money? Let them keep the money. Tell them Shabbat is your day. Whatever you make, it's yours. The rest of the week, you work for me for free. Shabbat, you own the place. Yeah, can I do such thing? So then we did the math. How much is supposed to pay three goyim for six days of work? And how much his business makes on Shabbat? Guess what? The salary of the three goyim it's exactly what he makes in the average Shabbat. <laughs> Couldn't be easier. Let the, tell them, yeah, what, do you, what do you care? You make the same. You're still going to get the same amount of money. But during the week, you work for me for free. Shabbat, the business is yours. At least we have a good start. Five minutes, a Jew gets saved. But what came before, he doesn't know. He doesn't know the dentist and the appointment that Hashem made it at 3 o'clock and that, we, that I promised to my son so we had to be in that restaurant and he brought him there to the same time and, and one thing leads to another and he Bichlal comes to talk to me about Shlom Bayit and this is all to save his neshama before he gets lost. 
You understand? So everything is supervised. If you don't see it, you are blind. And if you are blind, you miss a lot of the actions. <laughs> you can hear here and there things, but you don't see anything. It's very big, very big problem. So this is what we're speaking about here. If Hashem removes supervision from a person, he doesn't even need to punish him. Just this alone. I don't know if you remember once I told you the story about one Israeli guy. Remember, probably you remember this. About 20 years ago, I used to give lectures here in uh, East 14 and Avenue J. That block over there. There was a lot of Israeli lives in that building. Every Wednesday night, start at 9 p.m. until 5, 6 in the morning. All night, people walking in. 1 a.m., 2, 2 a.m., people come from the club in Manhattan. 1 a.m., another six people walked in. People go, people come. I'm much like a train station. There was one Israeli guy from Israel. He started to come, slowly, slowly become religious. Now, what was this guy doing? After, in the meantime, I don't know. I only see that he becomes serious. Okay. Then I invited him to come to Monsi for Yom Kippur. He came Yom Kippur. Now, on, on the night of Yom Kippur, after the prayer, we come back home. We sit and talk, me and him. And he told me, do you know why I started to come to your lectures? I said, no. He said, I'll tell you what happened to me. I was working for this guy, what my job was, drug dealer, selling drugs. But I wasn't selling the drugs to the people. I'm only the distributor, meaning my job is to go get the drugs in a suitcase and bring them. And then whatever they do, my job is like a transportation. It's a very big risk. <coughs> but I make 10 to $20,000 a week. A lot of money 20 years ago, even today. So he said to me, they told me, I, went, I had to go to LA to get a suitcase with 50,000 ecstasy pills. It's four years in prison if you get caught. 50,000 in a suitcase, you know, big suitcase. I was, so, back then, 20 years ago, you could still do things like this with the plane. They didn't have the security like today. All these cameras and all these things. So people used to go on the plane with a suitcase, check it in and take it. But he got a tip. They called him from New York, don't get on a flight. You have to come with buses from LA. Buses. The drugs came from Mexico into LA. And from there he has to bring it to New York. That's his job. But a guy in his 20s, in his 20s, driving a Lexus. Lexus just came out, I think, that year. 1990, 1991. So, you know, he comes with buses. Just when he arrived almost to New York, they close the road and they say, guys, prepare your ID. There's a checkout. Police. Who gets on the bus? FBI. On the front door and in the middle door that nobody would run. They get on the bus. Okay, everyone prepare their ID, please. The, 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 the driver of the bus, he turns the light on and he said, I was sitting 
in the last seat on the bus, all the way to the left, in the side of the driveway. The driver, the last one, they come with a flashlight, they check, they look at people's faces. They're looking for someone. Then he came to the end of the bus, he looks at me. I was almost getting a heart attack. He said to me, what do you have there? He had a suitcase there, right under his stuff. What do you have there in a bag? Just like that. Nobody asked what you have in your bag. What do you have there in a bag? I say, my stuff. Open it. He said, open it. Open it. So now I have 20 seconds before my life is open. I bend down to pick up the suitcase. My hands are shaking. My blood falls. I say, wow, Hashem, please don't do this to me. I don't want to finish like this. I promise you, if you save me now, I'll become religious. I'll do everything you want. Please save me. I have 10 seconds to pray. I picked up the suitcase. Everyone in the bus, look now. He puts it on the chair. He opened the zipper. He goes around like this. All now, another five. This is how we describe the story. All I had to do now is to pick it up. It's bags, all bags. Then the guy, the other guy screamed to him, Steve, we got him. You're good. The guy turned around and started to run. Another three seconds, I would be finished. So you want me not to come? How can I not come to the lecture? Tov, comes to the lecture, became Shomer Mitzvot. One day, I see he shows up with a girl. Nice looking girl, but totally secular. Pants, this, not religious. So ask him what's going on. So, listen, I met her, we're dating. But I want to make her also Shomer Shabbat. I bring her to the lecture. Few weeks, he said to me, good news. She also became Shomer Shabbat. Top, very good. I said, no, so what's going to happen? Few more months, he's dating this girl. Mazal Tov Rabbi, what? I'm going to get married in Israel. Top, he went to Israel. One week before his wedding, he walks into the house in the middle of the day. He finds the girl with his best friend in a bedroom. One week before his wedding. I don't have to tell you what happened. They won't get married. The marriage is canceled. In the meantime, he gets a call from New York that all the 20 guys that work with him in drug distribution are all arrested by the FBI. The bosses, and all the guys. And don't come back to New York. They're all in jail. Three months I'm in Israel. I don't have a job. I'm burning money. I have, and I know every week I'm losing $20,000, $10,000. I'm going crazy. In Israel, I, I burn all the money. What am I going to do now? I called up a lawyer in New York. Please check if I'm wanted. The lawyer check. There's no warrant for your arrest. I don't see you in a blacklist. You can come back. As far as I'm concerned, I don't see any reason why not to. The people in East 14 told him, if you come back, there's no dumber person than you. You're going to risk such thing to come back here? Listen, I'm going crazy here. Place is depressed. The wedding was called off. 
He did not listen to them. He decided to come back to New York. He came back to New York, JFK, soon as he came, hold on, sir, buzzing, right away, police, sir, put your hands behind your back, you're under arrest, took him to prison. He was in the list. They put him in prison, federal. They put him in jail, six years in jail. I used to send him books, but without the cover, you know, you have to take off the cover, just the papers. Six years he was in jail. The day he came out of jail, with his orange pyjama, two marshals from the jail, from the police, with handcuffs, took him directly from jail to the flight. They flew with him to Israel. I didn't know, they're so dumb. Just put him on a plane and get, get rid of him. Why you have to fly? It costs the taxpayers a lot of money. That's the rule. You don't just put him on a plane. What is he gonna do? He's gonna jump? I don't know. They have to fly with him to Israel and open the handcuffs over there. He said to me, later I saw him when I went to Israel, he said to me, you know what an embarrassment. They released me in the airport in Israel with a pyjama like this. I walk, everyone looks at me. <laughs> what happened? He can never come back to America. He came for the jail. Now, why Hashem did it to him? Hashem already saved him one time from jail, no? Because he stopped to keep Shabbat. In Israel, he was depressed. For what happened? Slowly, slowly, no lectures, no rabbi to wake you up. Slowly, slowly, hop! Hashem said, oh yeah, you promise and you're not keeping your nether? Go back to New York. Six years in prison, six years in for nothing. Then after that, he went back to Israel and that was the end of it. So everything is supervised. The first time Hashem made, remember, if this guy would come three seconds later, we got him, it's too late. It's all about timing. Hashem showed him I saved you in the last second. Not to leave any doubt that is no coincidence. If it would save him a minute earlier, before he even got the bag, you can say, oh, I got lucky. But here, mamash, another second, he would open it up and that would, that would be the end. Shem showed him, I stretched it to the last second to show you in one second what I saved you from. And what happened? Person forgets. And he goes back to his bad ways. This is it. So we move on. Beotot. What does it mean, beotot? What does it mean, ot? Ot, technically, literally, means a sign. Bemora gadol, the Agada says, zogilui shchina. Mora gadol means Hashem revealed this shchina, and everyone gets very scared. Wow, 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 no one is afraid to make a beep. Why? It's very scary. Okay. I'm going to explain now what it means. If a guest comes to your table, and you want to prove to them how we know that the Torah is not from people, here is right here. Remember this in the Agada. It's written like this. Anisa... Elokim lavo lakachat logoi mikerev goi. Did Hashem ever try 
to take a group of people from another group of people, במסות, באותות ובמופתים ובמלחמה וביד חזקה ובזרוע נטויה ובמוראים גדולים. Look at this list. אותות, מסות, מסות, אותות, מופתים, מלחמה, יד חזקה, זרוע נטויה, מוראים גדולים. Seven different ways. We have to understand what's the difference. It's not, it's not just like random language. Everything means something. Literally, I tell you what it means. It means the Torah is saying, did Hashem ever try to speak to a group of people and make all these wonders and magics in front of them like He did to you? Did it ever happen? Your eyes saw, אתה רואה את הלדעת כי השם הוא האלוקים, אין עוד מלבדו. מן השמיים השמיעך את קולו, ליסרקה. Your eyes saw that Hashem is the God, the Master. You heard His voice from heaven and He showed you all His miracles. That's what the Torah says. Now, the Torah says like this. Go and check in the history. This is really how it starts. Kish'alna le'yamim rishonim. Go and check in the history of the world. Maze kish'alna le'yamim rishonim. Go and ask from the past days of this creation. Ashama'am. Did a nation ever heard the voice of God like you heard? Go show me another group of people that claim that they heard the voice of God speaking to them like you heard. So this is a promise in the Torah. Concentrate. This is a promise in the Torah that at any generation, when we will read it, it will still be relevant and correct. The Torah gives us a guarantee. You will never see a group of goyim claiming, even if they're lying, I will never let a group of goyim claim that I spoke to them. They can lie as much as they want. I will never let them do that. You will never ever hear about a group of people claiming that me, God, spoke to them or did any performance in front of them for them like I did to you in the Exodus of Egypt. It will never happen. Do you know what the risk to write such a thing in the Torah? For those who claim that the Torah was written by people, what person will take such a risk? He's taking a guarantee that thousands of years from now on, in every generation, any time a person will read this book that I'm giving you now, this must be still accurate. That when he check in the past, he will never be able to find a group of people that say God spoke to us. Never. Never. What person can promise such a thing? Tomorrow five, six Arabs would come. We were in the middle of the desert. We saw a big light. God came down. We all fell down. He told us all kinds of things. He gave us this book. Let's say they're lying. It's conspiracy. But once they come and claim such a thing, we already have the first mistake in the Torah. And remember the rule. If you have one mistake in a book, it's not divine. Do you understand what I'm saying here or no? 
if now a group of Arabs or Europeans or Americans, whatever, they will come and claim God spoke to us, even though we know 100% they're all liars, and they have a reputation of liars, and whatever the case is, it doesn't even really matter if it happened or not. Just the fact that they gathered together and made such a claim already destroyed the Torah. Because the Torah promised that something like this will never happen. The Torah didn't say, I will never speak to the Goim. The Torah said, did you ever hear a group of Goim claiming, claiming that I spoke to them? Never. You will always hear one individual Goy. Muhammad, one. Buddha, one. Mary, one. Krishna, one. Obama, one. That's it. Never ever with witnesses. Mary came, she said, I had a dream. Okay, you had a dream. Who witnessed your dream? Nobody. Muhammad came. Malach Gabriel gave me the Quran. Where? In the desert. How many people saw it? No one. I was alone. Okay, your story. Buddha, I saw the light, enlightenment. How many people saw the light with you? No one. I was alone. Okay, no. <laughs> I also can claim a lot of things. Anyone can back me up? No. Like they say in Israel, Atat Sodek, Avalen Mishetzdik Otcha. They found a very good way out, Israelis. They don't argue with you, you're right, you're a liar, you're not a liar. They say, no problem, you're right. But there's nobody to justify you. You can talk until tomorrow. We're not saying you're not right, but you expect us to buy this story without witnesses? So the Torah took a huge risk. What human being would take such a risk? What, I control the whole history? From now on, what, I can prevent from billions of goyim that never a group of them will make such a lie? It's a very realistic lie. 80,000 times they made up a lie. One person came and made a fake religion. There's 80,000 religions and cults. 80,000 times one goy or goya came and claimed that God spoke to them or gave them something. Never in the history these 80,000 liars made sure to bring few fake witnesses and bribe them. Let me buy you a nice dinner. I want you to back me up. When I will tell that angel Gabriel gave me the Quran, all of you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's right, we were there, we all fell down. I'll tell you what to say. Never. So this is one of the proofs. I used it in my film, Torah and Science, among many other proofs that you see that a person can never guarantee such thing because a person knows limitation. I cannot control the future. I cannot prevent such a thing. I cannot commit on such a thing. Why will I do something so stupid to write such a guarantee in a book when I have no control over it? Right or wrong? So it's not realistic. But then we move on. What does it mean, Bemasot? The answer, miracles. Benisim. What does it mean, Beotot? What does it mean, Otot? Signs? Okay. What kind of signs? What signs? What signs Hashem gave us in Mitzrayim? 
He made us a lot of miracles. He hit the Egyptians. He saved us from dying, yes. But what, what, what kind of signs? This is what it means. That Moshe comes before and say to Paro, at this moment, that's what's going to happen. We we'll wait a few days, or a day, or two days, and the next day it happens, exactly like Moshe said. When the sun will come to this place, that's what's going to happen in the land of Egypt. Meaning, if you tell them one day it's going to happen, maybe in a week, maybe in a year, okay, it can be coincident. But when I come and say to you, God told me that that's what he's going to do to you, when? Tomorrow at 4 p.m. Or 4 or 3. And 4 or 3, that's exactly what's happening. Billions of grasshoppers are coming. That means Moshe gave him signs. You see the sun? When the sun will be here, that's what's going to happen to you. Boom. You see tonight at midnight, every firstborn in Egypt will fall and die. And Paro himself was a firstborn. He ran like crazy to look for Moshe and Aaron with his pyjama. And the kids were fooling him around. Where is Moshe? Over there. They ran over there. Where is Moshe? Over there. Imagine Paro with his pyjama run. Imagine Obama now. He runs with his pyjama everywhere. Hey, where? Hussein, over there. Okay, run over there. Hussein, over there. All night he runs, looking for Bibi. Imagine this. It would be a very serious joke. Meaning, retroactive. You will see that I was right from, the, from, when, from when I made my announcement. Now you understand that, okay. Like the Egyptians say, oh yeah, give me a sign that you're really speaking in the name of God. If today one person will come and say, Rabotai, I'm a prophet. God told me such and such. What are we gonna, how are we going to be able to know if he's a prophet or not? Today, there's no prophets, so we know he's not. But before the temple was destroyed, if someone that is righteous, he knows a lot of Torah, he has very good personality, good manners, good traits, and he come and say, I had a vision, I had a prophecy, and this is what's going to happen. We cannot make fun of him. We cannot cancel his words. We have to wait for the date he gave to see if he's right or wrong. We cannot say to him, the Rambam say, make us a magic that we will know that you're real. Meaning, okay, take this stick, throw it on the floor. If it will turn into a snake, we know that you're really a messenger of God. And if not, we'll kill you now. You're a fake prophet. Fake prophet has to be put to death. Why are we not allowed to do it? If someone would come today and say, Rabotai, Hashem spoke to me and that's what's going to happen tomorrow. And we say to him, just do, do us a favor. Get out of here. Don't waste our time. No, no, I can prove to you. I can prove to you. You see this water? I'm going to spill it now on the floor, and you see in a minute how it turns into blood. And then you know I'm a prophet. He opened the water, he spills it on the floor. In one second, it all became red. A sealed bottle that belongs to us. He did not bring it with him. It's not hocus pocus here. My bottle. He opened it, spilled it on the floor, became blood. Would you be convinced that he's a prophet or not? Or you would still have doubt? Everyone would be convinced. Right away, you call all your friends, Moshe, Moshe, come quickly to Orach Haim Shul. What? 
You're not going to believe there's a prophet here. He can cure you from your cancer. Come quick. Bring a nice check with you. Why? If he can do such thing, he can also go like this and the cancer is going to leave the lung. And what does the Torah say? That's nothing. You're not allowed to ask him to do these things. And if he does, don't buy it. That's why the Torah told you that the Khartoumim of Paro, when Moshe threw the cane on the floor, it became a snake, they did the same thing. Little kids. They took sticks, threw it on the floor, and became snakes. Why? To show you that the most impure, wicked people, idol worshiper, can sometimes do magics. Don't be impressed. So how would we know if he's a prophet? The answer is, we wait for the date and see if it happened or not. No other way. You know, in the New Testament, JC came to his student, and this is what he told him. Don't believe in me because you see me doing magics. Don't believe in me. Later on, in the same book, it say, why don't you believe in me? Don't you see I'm doing magic? <laughs> Clearly in the New Testament. To show you, it's not the book of God. God is not a clown. One minute he said one thing, two pages later he says something else. Totally the opposite. In a, it's very interesting. You know, in the in Quran, a large portion of the Quran speaks very highly and very nicely about the Jews. And then later on, he turns the Jews into pigs and eggs. What happened? In the beginning, he said, the holy nation, I saved them from Egypt, I brought them to the promised land, I gave them the Torah, I chose the prophet Musa, Moshe, I saved them from the wicked people, speaking very highly about the Jews, the children of God. All of a sudden, there will be day that the Jews will hide behind the tree in Iraq, and the rock and the tree will scream, there's a Yahud hiding here, come and kill him. What happened? What, God is moody? One hour he loved the Jews, the next thing he wants to kill them? No, very simple. All you have to know is a little bit history. In the beginning, when Muhammad came and claimed that he's a prophet, he started to go from one person to another to ask them, are you with me or not? You accept me as a prophet or not? Those who accepted, accepted. Those who didn't, right away killed them. He had a gang. Right away it started with terrorism. Terrorism, murdering people with a sword. Then he came to the Jews. The Jews lived in a different part of Arabia. The Jews already have religion. It's not people like the Arabs didn't have religion. Until Muhammad came, the Arabs were idol worshippers living in a desert. Like in the time of Abraham Avinu, it's written clearly. <coughs> now he comes and claims that he's the prophet. He brings the Quran. Some people join him. Some people refuse to accept him. He kills them. The other people have no choice. He's going to kill me. I don't want to mess with this guy. Now we come to the Jews. The Jews gave him hard time. In the end, they did not accept him. You're not a prophet. Leave us alone. From the minute, the Jew, as long as he had hopes, that the Jews will accept him, that will make him legit. Because the Jews are the important people of the world, the nation of the book. Even in my Quran, I call them the nation of the book. Even in my Quran, I say how important are the Jews and they are the chosen people. And the land of Israel belongs to them. 
that's written in the Quran. But now the Jews stuck a knife in my heart or in my back. They turned me down. Such an embarrassment. He started to write extra things in the Quran. What? He didn't know how to write. And he didn't know how to read. He had a person who writes for him. Now all of a sudden, when the Jews didn't want him, mitzvah to kill them, make sure you don't leave them alone. That's it. That's the story of the Quran. <laughs> On top of many other contradictions and all kinds of fake things there. But this is it. This, that's what it is. That's why they're very confused. Sometimes you hear Arabs in the name of the Quran, you have to kill all the Jews, you're never going to have rest until we kill them. Then you hear another, uh, another Arab from, this, from different mosque. It's not true. God loves the Jews. The Jews are not true. Well, what's going on? Which book you are representing? Same one. But Muhammad over here had an agenda. When the agenda fell, he changed everything he said. Like politicians. You with me? You can be the minister. Oh, you're not with me? You fired. That's how it goes. Top. Let's move on. So, what do we? What does it mean? Otot. When I give you signs, when the moon will be here, that's what's gonna happen. When the sun's gonna reach to here, that's what's gonna happen to you. In advance. Mazeh bemoftim. What is it? Mofet. Huh? What's the difference between miracles and wonders? <laughs> the answer is Lashon Pitui. Mefate. Like seducing someone to do something. Infatuations. What's the connection between miracles and seduction and all these things? The change of the nature seduce the heart and the evil inclination of the human being to believe in the master of the nature. When you see now, Rabbi, I'm an atheist. You know, you, you want me to believe in God? If God's gonna make an earthquake right now, in Elat or in Tel Aviv, I become religious. Well, Obviously, every clown that wants a sign, Hashem is not going to rock the creation for him, right? But what happened if the rabbi said to the guy, you know what, fine. Count to ten, and it's going to be an earthquake. But you promise to keep Shabbat? Yes, rabbi, I promise. If you're going to make earthquake now, of course I'll be Shomer Shabbat. Well, it's no question. If God moves the land, that, that means you're right. What happened? Earthquake. So right away, so you know, I keep my word, I'll keep Shabbat. Well, two or three weeks, and of course, it's going to go back to the way it was. But for at least for a few weeks, it will make some impression on him. Right? Right or wrong? So, it's very interesting because he used to be a rabbi. He passed 15, 16 years ago. His Israeli rabbi, his name was Rav Nisim Yagen. You heard him? You heard about him? He was a famous speaker, but he wasn't lucky to live in our days. Meaning he lived in a time when there was no internet, no Facebook, no YouTube, no CDs. Everything was primitive. They had audio cassette and video cassette, and that was it. There was no media that you can go to millions of listeners. So you, have, you work very hard. 
you give tons of lecture, in the end, how many people would, 50 people came to your lecture, that's it, you spoke to 50 people. 200 people came, you spoke to 200 people. It's not broadcast live like we do right now to so many thousands of people. And there's no CDs like now, and there's no apps, and there's none of the things we have today, they had in this time. If he lived today, then he would go probably to millions of people. He was the kind of speaker that from the minute you sit on the chair, excuse my language, you know, okay, better I don't say what happened to you, but your heart goes down to your feet. You shake. I remember I was sitting with my father in a car in a parking garage in Manhattan, and we listened to his, uh, we drove from Queens to, to downtown Manhattan, we listened to his tape, we arrived to the parking lot, and we sat for an extra half an hour in a car. We couldn't close it until we had to finish the tape. It was like electric. Very, very scary. Only to honest people that can handle the truth. So many people run away. No, it's too scary. I cannot hear. But if you're able to listen to him, in one month you become religious. No games. This is the kind of speaker he was. So he once told a story that happened with him. He went to give a lecture in a place, and one Israeli wise guy, one of many, said to him, Kvod Arav, you know when I'm going to become religious? When hair going to grow in my palm. Making fun of him in public. The rabbi, serious rabbi, and this clown is saying, Rabbi, you know when I'm going to be religious? Sheigdal li sa'arot po. When hair is going to grow here, that's when I will be religious. And the Rabbi told him, Amen. That's it. The guy left home, and years went by. Now the story begins. One day he sits in his office in his yeshiva in Yerushalayim, with the books. One person comes. By the door, beer, big yamaka. Kvod Arav, yes, shalom. Can I talk to you one second? You remember me? No. Yeah, because of the beard, you don't recognize me. Remember back in time you came to that place and you gave a lecture? Yes. Remember I got up and I told you I would become religious when hair is going to grow over here? He said, yes, yes, you're the one. Wow, you became religious. Let me see your hand. Hair all over. So Rav Nisim again, he said, I couldn't believe how hair would grow over here. Hair would grow on the other side, not here. So I asked him, how can it be? <laughs> Even I couldn't believe that Hashem had such a miracle. So I asked him, what happened? So I'll tell you what happened. I was driving on Yafo in Jaffa on the way to Tel Aviv. I was go it was like, a, 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 the street is round, round street. As I was making like a turn, a bus came from the other side and my hand was outside of the window and the bus came so close to my car, smashed my hands, ripped the entire skin everywhere from the front, from the back. You could see all, they took away from my back here, skin in a plastic surgery, the Israeli doctors and renewed the entire skin. But now I have hair is growing. So you say, you see, that's called 
מופת, מיניה השם אינטפיר, ממש with a miracle against all odds. לשון פיתוי. When this guy saw that hair is growing in his palm, you don't need to be a genius to know. Remember what I announced? I better keep my promise. טוב. What does it mean ביד חזקה? With strong hand. That Hashem forced Paro to let them go against his own will. חזקה, by force. טוב. What does it mean בזרוע נטויה? As we said before. that the threat was so big, the higher the hand goes, that then you know it's going to hurt even more. Or thought we say what it is? Okay, now we move on. What does it mean, Bemoftim? We said, Ze Adam. Bemoftim Ze Adam. Egypt became all blood. We think that the Agadah is talking about the first plague. Dam, Tzfardea, Kinim, Arov. First one was blood. But that's not what we're talking about here. Ubmoftim ze adam, shayta bichlal eser amakot. The ten plagues we say separately in Haggadah. So which blood we are talking here about? The answer, when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moshe Rabbeinu came to them, and he said to them, I'm giving you signs now. What is the signs? When the sky ונתתי מופתים בשמיים ובארץ, דם ואש ותמרות עשן. Blood, fire and smoke everywhere. When you see this in the sky, then you know what's going to happen to you. So that's a separate thing. Blood meaning everything turns into red. One of the things that will happen when Mashiach comes, it's written by the Prophet, that the sky will be all blood. That's why the Christians, they speak a lot about uh, blood moon, blood moon, what they call it? Blood moon. They keep making a lot of noise about this blood moon. Where is their source? It comes from the Prophets. That they said there will be day, it will be hard to know if it's a day or a night, everything will be like blood. Oh, we don't understand until we see it. Now, now the second plague is Tzfardea, frogs, frogs. There was one big frog, the Egyptian hit them on the head, it turns into two. Then they hit the other one, it turned again into two. So the Egyptian is hitting the frogs and they split. What's wrong with you? Why you continue to hit? From here you can have a proof that a person in a time of anger does not control his action rationally. I saw in my own eyes, I was eating in some place, the, the husband was a very angry person, very angry, and the wife was very intellectual, elegant, American, Ashkenazi woman, and the man wasn't exactly the same kind of man, and she was driving him crazy, you know, and he wasn't exactly understanding to talk in her level. So she drove him crazy in the middle of the meal, in his house, husband and wife. 
Her sister is there, her mother is there, her daughter and son from first marriage is there, and me and him. What would you think he did? In front of everybody. He picked up the entire table, glass table. Everybody eats dinner now. And flipped the entire thing on, on all of us, with the soup, with everything, like this in the air. I don't know how I was so strong to pick up the whole thing. What an embarrassment. I'm just stand by, standing by. I have nothing to do with the conversation. But just to be there, I was so embarrassed. Meaning a person that is in anger, that's it. His logic does not work. All people who kill in the heat of the moment, and five minutes later, they regret it for the rest of their life. What did I do? Why was so stupid? Today one person called me from a mental psychiatric place. They locked him in for three weeks. Why? He told the psychiatrist, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you. Four words. Three weeks, handcuffs in a cage with shots all day. Screaming to me, Rabbi, come and save me, I'm suffering here. I cannot imagine myself here and pass overnight. Mental case. I told him, you have to learn from this. Life and death is depend on the mouth. What went through your head to tell your psychiatrist that she <laughs> control your life now? I'm going to kill you. What do you think she's going to do? Right away, police come, arrest him. It's dangerous, put him in there. My money, this psychiatric jail. <laughs> How exactly I'm going to get him out? There's no way to talk to anybody there. So what do you see? You say, yeah, I was foolish. I was angry. Moment of anger? How much is suffering? Same thing over here. The Egyptians hitting the frogs. And they multiply, but they can control their anger because the frogs everywhere, in your bedroom, in here, in your plate, inside the oven. Why am I telling you this? When the Gaon Mivilna was seven years old, Shagat Aryeh was an older rabbi, big genius. He asked him a question. The Gemara in Masechet Psachim, page 53, the Gemara says, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they jumped into the furnace. The three big tzaddikim. They learn from the frogs. Needless to say, if the frog went inside the oven, because Hashem said that the frogs will fill up every inch of Egypt, even include the, the oven, what would go into the fire? So he said, if the frogs to do the will of God jumped into the fire, we, the Jews, when the Goim wants to force us to go away against our religion, we, needless to say, we have to jump into the fire to do the will of God. If the frogs who does not have the wisdom, they did it, who are we not to do it? Okay. It's written, The frogs will fill up your oven. That's what Hashem said to them before they came. Now, we that are obligated to do Kiddush Hashem, it's needless to say, we have to die for Hashem. 
יעסת גאון מווילנה, שהגת אריה, יעסת, יעסקים, it's hard a little bit. Why? The frogs, Hashem gave them a direct order. You must fill up the oven. Frogs are robots. They do what Hashem tells them. It's not, oh yeah, Hashem, I'm not in a mood to jump into the fire. Hashem moves the animals as he wants. They don't have this choice. The frogs died on Kiddush Hashem. So what, what's the connection between what Hashem told to the frogs and what Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah needs to now kill themselves for the sake of heaven? The Gaon Mivil answer. he was seven years old, Rabotai. He said, Hashem commanded the frogs to fill up the oven. But he did not say which frog has to be in the oven and which one not. He did not say, you in the oven, you in the refrigerator, you inside the, the bakery, you in the bedroom. No. Hashem only said, the frogs will fill up everywhere. They fill up the bedrooms, they fill up this, they'll fill up there, they fill up everything, the streets. Who told those frogs, you're going to jump into the fire? No one. They chose to go into the fire to sacrifice their life. That's what they learned, needless to say. You understand? Same thing with the Nazis. Same thing with the Egyptians. Who told you to run, kill Jews? Nobody told you to go be an SS soldier. Hashem said, Egypt will kill us. Egypt will torture us. But who, who told you to be the one that does it? Pretend you're sick. I don't want to do it. I'm sorry. I, I cannot see. I cannot walk. I cannot be a soldier. Why you want to do it? Ah, you enjoy from it. It doesn't bother you. That's what's going on. And the Shagat Ariel kissed him on his forehead. Seven years old, he already got the answer. Then we have Barad, hail. You saw now, in some parts of the world, sometimes Hashem sent hail. It breaks the windshields of all the car. You saw that? Do you know how big they are? Size of a tennis ball. They film on the floor. No exaggeration. Size of a tennis ball. Each piece of ice falling like a machine gun. All over. Breaks all your windows. Breaks the glasses of your, of your doors to the house. The doors to the deck. All the cars are smashed. The roof of the car are all having holes in them. It's like shooting machine guns, but big things. It's like rocks. Millions of them in a second falling on a town. It's not like people think, oh, sometimes there's little balls like this. Ah, big deal. No, 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 it breaks everything. But not only that, it comes with fire with it. It falls together with fire, meaning water and fire, or ice and, and fire are two enemies. One is an enemy of the other. Water puts off the fire, fire puts off the water. They don't live together. That's the miracle. Not only I send you hell, I send it with fire for you to see that it's not regular hell. It's a, a miracle of the moment. Ki bapam azot ani sholeach et kol magefotai libecha. Ve'ainu akadosh baruchu ma'anish ovre retzono ba'esh. Hashem punished the sinners with fire, with wind, and with water. In Sodom, 
He punished them with fire. Fire came from heaven and burned them. In the flood, when all the wicked people drowned in the time of Noah, he punished them with the water. In the generation of the Babylonian tower, tower, Hashem punished them with the wind. Everyone went to a different side of the world, spreading them like the wind. And the plagues of Egypt, Dam, Utzfardea, Bemaim. Dam and the frogs with water. Grasshoppers with the wind. The, the eastern wind brought them. Shechin, Baesh. The, the, the Shechin was with fire. Mipiach HaKivshan, from the oven, from the smoke of the oven, it spreads all over Egypt. In the hell, all three of them. Water, fire, and winds, winds that sends it hard on the ground. That's what it means, kol magefotai. This time it's a triple combination of three things. Water, fire, and wind. All three in hell. Usually it's only one. Here, all three of them. That's the miracle of hell. Otherwise, eh, we have hell now in Mexico, in all kinds of places. Every once in a while you get on a WhatsApp, a video, to see what it does. It destroyed the town. No, that's not what it was. It came with fire and wind and noises and all these things. Darkness. What's special about the darkness? For three days, you don't see anything. But you can walk, like closing your eyes, touching the walls. You know more or less where you're going. Next three days, you cannot move. After 72 hours that you can still move, but you don't see anything, Right after that, when the fourth day started, you paused in your last position. If you were sitting on a chair, you're itching your nose, that's how you stuck for three days. If you're in the middle of getting up, you're stuck like this. If you're sleeping on a bed, you're stuck like this. If you're walking and you're standing like this, you're stuck like this, you cannot move. Three days, you are frozen, you cannot move. Imagine now your nose is itching and you cannot move your hands. Similar when they put you in the MRI machine, they go like this. Guess what? As soon as the machine takes you in, all of a sudden the nose is itching, this and you cannot move. It's crazy. Now to 15 minutes you're inside, machines, noise. Let me just move my hand to itch my nose. I'm, go I'm going crazy on my, on my shoulder. <laughs> I can't move. Three days, not 15 minutes. Drives them crazy. 15 days. Now here is the punchline here. Vayamesh Choshech. The Gaon Mivina explained, it's written, Lo Yamish Mitoch HaOel. Maze Yamish, what does it mean, Mash? What does it mean in Hebrew? Lo Yamish. Lo Yamish means he does not move away from the tent. Vayamesh Choshech, it means that the light in the creation, everybody know Hashem created light. Darkness, is darkness is a separate creation of Hashem, or darkness is a lack of light? When the light goes away, that's what you get, darkness. Meaning, one light is in, 
there's no darkness. You take away the light, there's darkness. But darkness is not a creation of its own. Or darkness, it's a creation by itself. Which one of the two is correct? Huh? 100%. We say it in Tfilat Arvit. Yotzer Or, Uvore Choshech. Why they don't say Bore Or, Uvore Choshech? Or Yotzer Or, Veyotzer Choshech? Why Yotzer Or, Uvore Choshech? What's the difference between the word Bara Leben Yatzar? What's the difference? Why sometimes the Torah use this word bara? Bereshit bara elokim et ha-shamayim ve-ta-aretz. In the beginning, Hashem created heaven and earth. Right? And later it says, Vayitzer Hashem elokim et ha-adam afar min ha-adama. Hashem created Adam, sent from the ground. But he did not use the word bara. He used the word yatzar. Yetzira. What's the difference between bria and yetzira? The answer is, bara means yesh me'ayin. There is nothing, nothing. No raw material, no nothing, and now there is something. Out of nowhere. That's called bara. Yatsar means there was already raw material. I shaped it into something. You have plastic? I used that plastic to make a laptop. So I was yatsar, et a laptop. That's why in Israel they call it yatsran. The manufacturer, meaning he had raw material. I had stone, I had plastic, I had uh, aluminum, all these things that I need, glass. So with what I had, I made a shape of something, right? When Hashem already made sand and water and oxygen and iron and all these things, and with that he made the Adam. But those materials already were existed in a creation. So from that, he shaped us to the image of Adam. That's why it says, Yatsar et Adam. Right? We say in Asher Yatsar, Asher Yatsar et Adam bechokhmah. We don't say Asher Bara et Adam bechokhmah. Asher Yatsar, meaning there was already a creation, and from that, Hashem made Adam. That's the difference between Yatsar, Tzura. Tzura means image. Tzura, a shape. You have a shape, triangle, circle, line. This is called tzura. Image of the face, it's called tzura. Right? So, what do we see? That the darkness was created by itself, regardless of light. Regardless of light. Darkness is a creation by itself. Now, when a little bit of light comes, it overcomes the darkness. That's all. But the darkness exists all the time. So it says like this. The nature over here is that the darkness overcame the light. That was the miracle. Usually light always wins against the darkness. Always. What Hashem did in Makat Choshech, in darkness, that the darkness kicked away the light, which is against the law of nature. It's always the other around. Very interesting. So we move on. The Khartoumim, the helpers of Paro, they say to Paro, this is the finger of God, meaning the hand of God. What, is, what are they talking about? 
What, what is the finger of God? Sometimes Hashem does something that is judgment and mercy mix at the same time. Everybody understand that judgment and mercy are two opposite, right? If I judge you fairly, I give you very serious punishment. If I judge you with mercy, I don't give you the punishment I'm supposed to give you because I have mercy on you. Okay, I'll let you go. Pay a hundred dollars and go. If I judge you with judgment, two weeks in jail. If I judge you with mercy, pay a hundred dollars and go. Don't do it again. That's called mercy. Can it be both of them at the same time? I judge you strictly. I judge you with mercy at the same time. Can it be? Can we do such thing? We either do this or we do that. The chidush that with Hashem, it can be done at the same time. How? How? Kegon, a person that punishes his son. Do you love your son or no? Yes. When you punish your son, when do you punish him? Your son lo alenu killed your other son. Cain and Evel. Cain killed Evel. Now let's describe Adam who comes to punish his son, Cain, for killing Evel. Right? Lo alenu, that we never had such a test in life. But now when you're going to punish the son that killed your other son, is this judgment or is that mercy? You put him in behind bar, you locked him in for a few years. Is this judgment or is that mercy? You did a transaction, right? You took your son by force, locked him in a cage. Is this judgment or is that mercy? If it would be a stranger, you also put him in cage. So it looks like judgment. You give your son the same punishment like you, go, you give to anybody else that would do it. So where is the mercy here? Huh? No, Hashem punished. Hashem puts a person now behind bar. So he's judging him with judgment. So where is the mercy? No. Let's say he killed him, no. Let's say he killed him. Let's say he executed him, no. We still have mercy here. Listen carefully. Mitzad echad din laoreg. Judgment to the murderer son. Mercy on the victim. In one transaction, you do judgment and mercy at the same time. By punishing the murderer severely, it's an act of mercy to who? To the victim. Not like the liberals lefties in Israel. Always scream, poor murderers, Palestinian. Leave them alone. Why don't you have mercy on the Jews, children that just got butchered? They don't even care. They care about Ahmed. Poor Ahmed. The occupation. Why don't you have mercy on the victims? Never. Always take the side of the murderers. Having mercy on the murderers, the Torah say, that's cruelty. That's not mercy. Cruelty to the victims and their families. You are a monster. 
If you ever have mercy on a murderer or on a rapist or on, on, on all these monsters that walks around us, you are a monster yourself. You're not humanic like you think. We are not like them. We should judge with mercy. We are Jewish. We have to be humanic. Sit, you fool. The Torah didn't say that. You want to be more merciful than God? God didn't say that not everyone deserves mercy. No. When you have now Adolf Eichmann in your hand, who killed in his own hand more than one million Jews. That's what they say. <laughs> Only Hashem knows the exact numbers, but he is one of the main murderers. Adolf Eichmann in Machshimo. The Israeli Mossad, I think they caught him in Argentina, brought him in a box to Israel. And now they have to execute him. Do you think all Jews in Israel wanted him to be executed? No. There were many Libras who screamed, it's not right to kill him. Let's not show them that we also like them. What's the connection, you fool? Here is the justice. You must do it. Otherwise, you are cruel to the victim of this monster. Give them a little rest. They won't ever have a, a minute of closure. And until this monster who killed their whole family will at least be clean from the face of the earth. So you have mercy on him, but you don't care about million people that cry day and night in depression for years. You don't care about them. Who did you choose to have mercy on? The mass murderer. You understand what's going on here, Abutai? That's what's happening today in Israel. The lefties, they have mercy on Palestinian murderers. And who they hate and wish them to die? to the holy rabbis and Talmidei Yeshiva. Same mouth that constantly speak to have mercy on the Arab murderers. Same mouth. Say, Haredim, go back to the gas chambers. We're tired of you. So meaning, you have an Israeli standing next to you in a supermarket, intellectual from the university, has some degrees, right? He stands next to you. In his mind, he look at the Arab worker in a supermarket with such mercy, poor Ahmed. I'm sorry that we're here. I'm apologizing to you that my parents came back to Israel. It's not right. That's how he thinks. Then you see the rabbi comes in, all day takes care of people, help the widows, the orphan, learn Torah, teach Torah, believe in God, you know, work on his character. Ugh. Wish I can kill you. That's what's happening today. Don't kid yourself. I'm not exaggerating. I promise you, I'm not exaggerating. She can confirm it. Israelis that knows what's going on, they'll tell you what's happening. Why is it happening? Very simple. The Torah already said. Everyone who will have mercy on the cruel. Sofo sheitachzer l'rachmanim, l'tzadikim. Guarantee to be cruel to the merciful and to the righteous. Guarantee. Because Hashem gave us mercy. Mercy works only when you use it right. If you use it for the wrong thing, when you will need it, you won't have it. You understand? 
You got it or no? That's it. Even today, they have mass murderers, serial killer in Texas. So they have execution. All these Libras demonstrate. Human rights. What human rights? Human. 60 people he killed. Human rights. This is a, it's a mass murderer, human rights. For his own good, you better take him away from here. You keep him here, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, this guy. Unbelievable. You say, well, but he's not a danger anymore. He's in a cage. But we have to spend a million dollars in the next 30 years to feed him, to give him dental, to give him food, surgeries, open heart surgery. You know how much the, the, the operation would cost if the serial killer have a heart attack? And you have to do bypass and take him to the hospital. How much is going to cost us? Million dollar, man. Surgeon, the equipment, the nurses, two months in hospital, you know, recuperation, this, what, you know? You know how much a day in jail costs to keep a prison, prisoner in jail? You know that many of the jails is private owned, privately owned. Someone owned the jail and, the, and he does, you know, he does business. The judge sends someone to the prison. And the government has to pay this owner of the prison for every prisoner every day, for every day in prison. How much a prisoner costs? Who knows? Here in New York, every day. Huh? $600 a day. Heat, electric, the cost of that, uh, doctors, food, everything that they need, yes. Three. $600 a day in New York State. Someone that told me that, he was in prisoner himself. And you know how many judges receive bribe to send prisoners to the jail? They get kickback. <laughs> yes, yes, no, no jokes. You, know, you have no idea what's going on here. Things that I hear, I cannot believe it's possible. They want to make the jails in Israel also private. Now the government own it. Not that there's no corruption when the government own it. There's always some kind of corruption. But imagine now it will be owned by people. Who will own the jail? A mafia guy. He has drug money. Hundred million dollars in cash. He'll build a facility. Would cost him 50 million dollars to build it. Every day, million dollar profit. The government will have to pay him. Why? Huh? In Pennsylvania. You get the point, Rabotai? So why keeping murderers alive? Why keeping them alive? Why should we spend a million dollars on each one of them? Not only they kill us and they torture us, now we're going to have to feed them 30 years? That's not what the Torah say. The Torah didn't say that. But they have mercy on them. Do you know that half of the terror attacks in Israel in the last year were done by Palestinians who were already in jail in Israel and they released them. They released them. The government, not only in Israel, in Europe as well, and in America as well, they are in the black list of the government and they can still do whatever they want when it comes to terrorism. Just today alone, three Arab terrorists penetrated Israel and went 20 kilometers free into Israel. And the cameras took pictures how they walk with, with bombs in their hands. 
until they got caught. I don't know what miracle we had that they didn't kill anyone. 20 kilometers walking free in Israel. Imagine, imagine a terrorist coming from Canada with a dirty bomb in his suitcase and he get caught in Manhattan. Just imagine this. With all the cameras. And not only that, the Israeli soldiers, they made an investigation. They found that someone touched the electric uh, fence. There is all kinds of... Every, every animal that touched the fence immediately shows someone is touching the fence. You have to send the jeep with soldiers immediately. Nobody cared. They ignored the call. That's what's going on. No. You know, in Israel, we surrounded ourselves with fences, ghetto, like a cage. If you drive in Yerushalayim, Shmuel Anavi, you pass Tramot, the grave of Samuel, you go another half a mile, you see everything is surrounded by fence. Unbelievable. You're standing here and you have fence around you. Why? You cannot sleep at night. What? They're going to walk from there and butcher you. So we have to put ourselves in a ghetto in order for us to sleep another night. And with this, still doesn't help. Either they make tunnels underneath or they smuggled with the cars with Arab citizens that have an Israeli plate. They smuggle them in a car. They still somehow smuggle them. And now many of them speak fluent Hebrew with Israeli accent. The ones who, they learn, they practice on it. Usually it used to be very easy to detect an Arab. Why? Because they cannot say the letter P. If they want to say, I want two pizzas, give me two slices of pizza. They say, give me two slices of pizza. They cannot say P. They say B. Right? So if they want to say can of Coke, how do you say can of Coke in Hebrew? Pachit. Cola. Pachit Coca-Cola. So they don't know how to say Pachit. They say Bachit. Bachit. Bachit in Hebrew means did you cry? So our Arab came to, to a pizza store. He gave, he said to the woman, give me two pizza and Bachit Cola. So she said, I didn't cry. Lo Bachiti. Say Bachit. Say Lo Bachiti. Like this going on. Say, no, no, Bachit Cola. They can say the letter P. But now they learn. They practice. But that's very interesting because how they call themselves? Palestinians. They can't even say their own name. They can't say Palestinians. Palestine. They cannot say P. That shows their scam. <laughs> Who would name his nation in a name that in their language they don't have the letter for it. <laughs> you understand what's going on here? But nobody catch it. Unfortunately. So, judgment and mercy at the same transaction. I have judgment against the cruel. At the same time, that's mercy for the victim. You understand? Okay. The nation feared God. Why does it say Hashem? It should say Elohim. Hashem has many names. 
The name of mercy is Yud K Vav K. The letter Yud, the letter A, the letter Vav, and the letter A. Every time it appears with these four letters, it's the God of mercy. Every time it says Elohim with Hey, that's the God of judgment. When you fear God, which name of God you fear? The Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey? Or the Elohim, the judgment God? The judgment, right? Like it says with Shifra and Pua, Vatirena Mialdot et Elohim. The feared God, the judgment, is going to punish them. So why over here it says, Since when you're afraid of the merciful God? He's appearing in his mercy now. What are you nervous now? Oh, it's, a good, it's a good moment now. So why are you afraid? Huh? What's, what's the secret here? Because with the nation of Israel, it was God of judgment right now only to the Egyptians. So the judgment to the Egyptians was actually mercy to the Jews. Why did the Jews fear God? Not because he came to hurt them. He came to save them. But how did he save them? By burying those murderers, the Egyptians. So why he take his anger and judgment against these Egyptians for the Jewish nation is mercy. That's what I explained. The one transaction that is judgment and mercy at the same time. You understand? Okay, so... Well, he has mercy on the enemy. Depend on what uh, situation. If God will have mercy on the enemies, that's cruelty to us. So I would be afraid of his mercy in that respect. No, but you, usually when you have a good side and a bad side, Hashem always takes the good side, not the bad side. But it's true, sometimes when a person is against the whole world, even though if it's a big sinner, big criminal, but there's not one person in the world that is willing to help him. He's alone in the world. Then Hashem is forced to become his lawyer. Elohim yevakeshet anirdaf. Same thing in Sanhedrin. If they, they have a trial against a murderer. And all 71 of the rabbis unanimously decided that he's guilty and needs to be executed. He cannot execute him. That's the law. If 70 say execute him, and one say don't execute him, he's innocent, you execute him. If all 71 say guilty, it's conspiracy. Cannot be that one judge did not find anything to protect him. Has to be a conspiracy. Because 71 opinions, now one thought is not guilty, it could be conspiracy. Come on, Hashem, you judge, you you suspecting the 71 holiest people in the world to make a conspiracy and to kill an innocent man? What? That's what you're saying? The answer is yes. But I don't suspect that they do it purposely. No. They do it from their subconscious. Subconscious. It works in a way that sometimes a person is not aware of what's happening to him. If you remember, once I told you the story about the murderer that his lawyer said to the jury and to the judge, in 10 minutes, the real murderer will walk through the door. And all of you will see the mistake you're about to make, sending my 
my client to the electric chair. I need 10 minutes break, your honor. And the judge said, okay, 10 minutes. And they're all sitting, looking at the door. And after 10 minutes, the murderer did not walk in. And the judge looked at the lawyer angry. Do you think I have time to waste? You're making me sit here for 10 minutes? Where is he? He said, your honor, he's not gonna come. I just wanted to prove to you and to all of you that you are not sure at all that my client is the murderer. If you were sure, you would not stare at the door for 10 minutes looking for the Mashiach to come. <laughs> so the law in the United States is you cannot convict a person that is, he has to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And here you have a much bigger and serious doubt here. You have a serious doubt. How are you going to kill a person when you have a doubt if it's him or not? You thought maybe it's someone else. So you're not sure. The judge called the jury right away to the room. Wow, it was a big thing. But after a few hours, they came out and they said, the jury find the defendant guilty. Guilty. They convicted him anyway. And what happened? All the jurors decided to let him go. Not guilty. But there was one woman who convinced each one of them that he's guilty and they reversed their decision. How did she do it? She said to them, when everyone was staring at the door, I looked at the defendant nonstop for the entire 10 minutes. And I found out that he is the only one in a courtroom who did not look at the door even one second. If I would look at him, looking at the door, hoping that the real murderer would come, then I would be more than convinced that he's not the murderer. Because, you know, you killed someone, you don't look at the door, hoping the Mashiach will save you, you know? But he did not even look. He was sitting like this. He knows he's the murderer. That's how she convinced everyone. It's all a scam. You see, so <laughs> if this guy would look at the door one time, he would go free. That's already a reasonable doubt. By the way, in the Torah, there's no such thing beyond reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt, even one to a million. If you have a chance of one to a million that is not, you cannot kill him. You can't. Why does a doubt? And today, by the way, when DNA came out, 30 people that were sentenced to death were set free. They were innocent. DNA proved that they were not they are not guilty. Imagine if the system would not be like this, that they sit for 15 years and wait until they execute the people. Sometimes they execute them fast. Sometimes they wait for many years. For whatever reason, they don't execute them. Every day they leave, maybe today they'll call me for dead. And they sit and wait. And after years, they checked again the case, and it's not even the murderer. They're about to kill an innocent person. Now I know what you're thinking, what a tragedy. They just killed an innocent person. So I wanna cool you off a little bit. There's no such thing innocent person. Everything a person get in this world, even in this specific allegation he was innocent, is guilty of something that he deserved to die for it. That's why Hashem turned it around that because he's supposed to die, they send him to the electric chair for other reasons, not for this. 
Sometimes people sit in jail, they swear in a lie detector. They pass the test. I did not do the crime. I did not commit the crime. It wasn't me. And they're right. They didn't do it. But Hashem wanted them 10 years in prison for different reasons. Different reasons. Nothing. Yosef Atzadik, they put him in jail. He didn't do anything with Eshet Potiphar. It's totally innocent. But Hashem had his reasons why he wanted him to be in jail. For different reasons. The Egyptian convicted him for going with the wife of the minister. Who cares? What do you care? What is the reason? The, the, the point is that Hashem wanted you to be there. One day, one month, one year, ten years. You understand? And when a person died in an accident, nobody made mistake. It's an accident. It's not, it wasn't a trial that someone killed an innocent person. And you say, wow, they kill, we killed an innocent person. What happened if he dies in an accident? Looks like a random accident. There's no such thing. Everyone that died deserved to die. Why? Maybe for something he did in this life. Maybe for something he did in his previous life. But if he got killed, that's what Hashem wanted. And Hashem does not want innocent, righteous people to get killed if they don't deserve it. So therefore, sometimes in this life is very, very righteous. And we don't understand how did he end like this. True. But you don't know his entire, all his reincarnations. If Hashem would show you the reason he gets killed now, age 50, in this life, for something he did 500 years ago, when he lived in France, 500 years ago, in a different body, now Hashem found that it's the right time to give him the punishment after 10 times he came in different bodies. For good and for bad. Mordechai and Esther lived 2,400 years ago. Why Mordechai and Esther saved the entire Jewish nation from destruction? Why? Thanks to the merit of King Saul, their grandfather. 600 years later, Hashem paid King Saul for his modesty. Why he didn't pay him in his lifetime? 600 years later, Hashem said, now it's the time to cash on your modesty. Your grandchildren, Shaul, eh, Mordechai, and Esther, they will save the entire Jewish nation and you get the credit. Because the only reason it happened is thanks to your modesty. You're a modest person. Now I'm paying you for the modesty. 600 years later. What? 600 years you're not paying me for my modesty? Where is the justice? Patience. Everything is by my computer. Timing is everything. This is, by the way, what we say in Birkat Amazon, It's needless to say that Hashem feed every creature in the world. Everybody gets food everywhere. Seven and a half billion people, everywhere you go, there's food, drink, people eat, survive. It's needless to say that it's the supervision of God. That's not chidush, it's nothing out of the ordinary to know such thing. What's special is be'ito, that's... That's why you have to put the highlight on. That the timing is perfect. Sometimes you have much more food than what you need and then 90% will go to the garbage. And a month later, you don't have even to survive. The idea is always to give you exactly what you need, just when you need. When you need to marry your son or your daughter, you need to raise, I don't know, $50,000 for the wedding, for a ring, for... And you don't have, you're making hardly any money, and all of a sudden, in a few weeks, one miracle after the other, and you make a wedding. 
Nobody understand how. And then you do it again and again and again, 20 kids. And you're a teacher in yeshiva, $40,000 a year. And you raise over a million dollars to make 20 weddings. And nobody understand why. And if you ask the rabbi, rabbi, how did you marry 20 kids? Each wedding cost you 50,000, how did you do it? I really don't know. I can't even explain. The idea is the right timing. Be'atano telaim et uchlam be'ito. Now, time almost ran out. Let's steal as much as we can. It says like this. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Minayin shekol makah vemakah shivya kadosh baruchu ala mitzrim bemitzrayim ha'ita shel arba makot. Every one of the ten plagues was actually four, meaning it was forty plagues. Not, not one, four. The Torah named one, but it was actually a combination of four. Sheneemar yeshalach bam charon apo evra vazam vetsara. Mishlachat malacherayim. Evra one, zam two, tsara three. Mishlachat malacherayim arba. Now, Emor Me'ata, maybe you should say, in Mitzrayim they had actually 40 plagues, not 10. 10 times 4. Rabbi Akiva say, how do you know that every plague that Hashem hit the Egyptians with was 5, not 4? And he gives proof. Yeshalach b'amcharon apo, Evra, 1, Zam, Tzara, Mishlachat Malachir Haim, Charon Apo 1, he includes also Charon Apo, so it's 5. Why the Chachamim are trying so hard to make the plagues much more than what it was in reality? What's, the, what's, the, what's behind it? They're trying to say that Hashem did not really hit them only 10 times, 50 times, 40 times. What's behind it? What motivates the rabbi to increase the damage to the Egyptians retroactively if it's written clearly in a Torah that Hashem hit them ten times? Kiddush Hashem, it's enough with ten. Ten, it's also Kiddush Hashem. I think that after 10 plagues that you destroyed Egypt, <laughs> it's enough Kiddush Hashem. Everybody knows who runs the show. Everyone knows, right? Right or wrong? I'll tell you why. Yeshalach bam charon apo, evra vazam vetsara. What does it mean charon af? There are a few words in Hebrew that sounds like anger. Charon af, kaas, Zaam, Evra, look how many words. You ask the Israelis in Israel, tell me the difference between Charon Af, Evra, Kaas, Zaam. Now one person will know the difference. Four different languages of anger. But what's the difference between them? What does it mean Charon Af? Chara Api Bayom It's written a few times in the Torah. Chara Af Hashem. That smoking comes out of God knows. What does it mean, Charon Af? Charon Af is in the mind and in the speech. 
in your mind something drives you crazy someone did something that you cannot believe how can it be and you will express your feeling but you do nothing about it you don't hit him you don't you sit and you're full of fire so the anger is from the mind to the mouth stay in your head that's it doesn't leave the head going it doesn't send any order to the head what's evra evra what's evra it's anger in actions you break a glass you throw a rock at someone you push him you punch him close the door on him you do all kinds of things like that that's called evra that's why the day of death call yom evra yom evra why hashem execute his anger at you into execution that's why they call it evra not a cast because cast is only in a plan in a mind Evra means it's actually execution, into action. What does it mean, Zaam, Zoem, Zaam? What is Zaam? That the anger is so high that it does not let you come in front of that person that you're angry at. You cannot see him even. That's called Zaam. It's such a level of anger that as soon as you see him, you're... You lose your mind without him doing anything. Just seeing him, that's it. That's called Zams. You see, different words have different meanings. Now I tell you, why the Chachamim are trying so hard to multiply the damages? Because there is a verse in the Torah. Kol ha-machala asher samti b'mitzrayim all the sicknesses, the punishments that I gave to the Egyptians in Egypt, I will not give to you because I am your God, your doctor, your savior. So the Chachamim said like this, if there's only 10 plagues, so we're only gonna get saved from 10. Let's make it 50. The insurance will be on more things. Why on 10 only? Spread it to as much as possible. So the more we pull from the psukim, we'll do drashot, then Hashem is forced not to punish, men, uh, to punish us in more and more options. That's why they went out of the way to find in a psukim hints that it was really more than one. It was really four, it was really five. So it's very, very good. It's like your son comes to you and say, Abba, you promised me every time I'll do something good, you give me ice cream. So you say, what did you do good? He say, I got a hundred on a test. Okay, here is ice cream. No, you have to give me more. Why? Because I also learned for the test. Oh, and I also went to get the book. It was far away. So it's another ice cream. And I did this and I did that. <laughs> I went to sleep early that I'll be able to be awake on the test. He's finding anything he can. Right? To make the one good thing into five. And I did this, and I did that, and I deserve for this. To elaborate, same thing over here. Now, it's the famous part that the Persian takes the scallion and begin to break each other's head. There's an old Persian custom that I'm still looking for, <laughs> for the source of it, where it comes from. That that's when they begin to sing Dayenu, and boom, they begin to smash their heads with a scallion. 
It's also Afghanis and Bukhari, all the area over there. Ilu otsiyanu mimitzrayim velo asa bahem shvatim, dayenu. Dayenu means also good. No complaints. Daylanu. Dayenu means it's good enough. If Hashem took us out of Egypt and did not punish the Egyptians, good. If Hashem punished the Egyptian and did not destroy their idols, also good. If Hashem destroyed their idols and did not kill their firstborn, also good. If Hashem killed their firstborn and did not give us all their money, also good. If Hashem gave us all their money and did not split the Red Sea, also good. So we have to understand what's good about it. If Hashem did not take us in an ocean, in a Red Sea, on a dry land, right? If, we would, if Hashem opened the Red Sea but did not take us on a dry, smooth, uh, uh, clear path, also good. If Hashem took us in a path and did not drown our enemies behind us, also good. If Hashem drowned our enemy in the Red Sea and did not give us what to eat, all our needs in the desert for 40 years, also good. If Hashem gave us everything we needed for 40 years and did not give us the man, special bread, special bread that falls every day, we don't have to bother, also good. If Hashem gave us the man and did not give us the Shabbat, also good. If Hashem gave us the Shabbat and did not bring us to Mount Sinai, meaning to give us the Torah, also good. If Hashem took us to the Mount Sinai, all of us around the mountain, and He did not give us the Torah, also good. If Hashem gave us the Torah and did not bring us to the Holy Land, also good. If Hashem brought us to the Holy Land and did not build the Temple in Jerusalem for us, also good. What is this? What's all this list now? First of all, it's mentioning all the miracles, as you can see in the right order. Second, is teaching us, don't look at the negative. Focus on what you got, not what you didn't get. If you always focus on what you're missing, what you didn't get, you will never ever be happy in life. Hashem found your wife. Yeah, but she's not pretty like my brother's wife. Why are you looking at that? Look at the fact that Hashem gave you a wife. How many people don't have a wife? You will always find what to ruin all your pleasure in life. One little thing and that's it. You bought a beautiful... Uh, set of furniture, one tiny scratch. Ah, look at this, sad. Look at this, look, the mover made a little scratch on it. It's going crazy, a week he doesn't eat. Moshe, come eat, Shh, leave me alone. He's the only one who paid attention to this scratch. <laughs> Not one, one person ever will see it, yeah, but I know. So that's right away, look at what you already did. Don't look at what you didn't get. What you already got, nobody owed you anything. It's already a huge thing. But that's not the main thing. 
there's much, it's much, much, much deeper. If Hashem gave us the money of the Egyptians but did not open the Red Sea, what would the money help us? You give me now a billion dollar gift and you lock me in a prison for the rest of my life. How is it going to help me exactly? How is it going to help me? You gave me a big sack of diamond, you put me under the ground and locked me in. Nobody even knows where I am, but I have tons of diamonds with me. So I say, thank you for giving me so many diamonds. If you gave me all these diamonds and you did not get me out of this hole, very good. What very good? You're lying, it's not very good. <laughs> Better to be out than to get these diamonds. Right? Oh. <laughs> it's like a, a, an old man, he, he lost his teeth. So he doesn't have teeth now. So his wife say, I saved money. You're gonna go and make fake teeth. No, these teeth that you put in the glass. So after they make the teeth, she locked him in a place and she said, now you're gonna die from starvation. No food. So, so why did you make me new teeth? She said, you should thank me for the teeth. Why? That I made you very new teeth, like this. You'll be able to eat. Yeah, but you're now killing me from starvation. Better you didn't bother with the teeth. What is this? One rabbi, he used to talk long. Like someone I know. He <laughs> said, soon we finish, two minutes, another half an hour. Another thing and we're done, another half an hour. So the people in the yeshiva, they were in a rush today. They didn't want him to go into lunchtime because they had plans. So they put a clock to remind him. One o'clock, it's lunch break. When he said now, he said, he come to he call one of the people and said, listen, I forgot my teeth in the house. Cannot speak without the teeth. Run quickly, I live across the street. Bring me my teeth. The guy ran, he, got, he went and got him the teeth in a glass. He take the teeth out, shake the water, put it in, and, and began to give a speech. One o'clock arrived. Everyone points. They continue, 1.15, 1.30. Usually he finish 1.15. It's still 15 minutes from the lunch break. Now it's already talking to Mincha. No lunch break. Three already. They're going crazy. Now nobody will get up. It's a big important rap. So one student asking for the rap, beautiful speech, but usually you take 15 minutes from the lunch break. Why today you spoke three hours? He said, I'm sorry, it's not my fault. You brought me my wife's teeth. <laughs> <laughs> you made a mistake. Next time bring my teeth, I finish 150. <laughs> my wife, she likes to talk. Anyway, so what is the point over here? If Hashem gave us their wealth and now we locked in Egypt, how long we will be able to hold the well? They come and kill us. No? The answer is, Rabotai, there were three ways to cross the border. Three ways. One is that the water would freeze like ice. Like in the lakes here. You can walk on the ice, you can drive a car on it. Some places, that's what people do. Ice skating on the ocean, on the river. It freezes into ice. People walk over it. Okay. Second, 
that the ocean would split, but we will still have to go very deep down. Like, it's very deep. So we have to go all the way down, and then when we finish, we have to go all the way up. It will be like in a pool. If you take the water out, it's very deep. You have to go all the way down, go to the other side of the pool, and then go all the way up. It's not comfortable to go all the way in and goes in and out, and it's deep and it's not deep. So you have to go very deep. What was the miracle that Hashem not only split it, He made it smooth and straight. You don't have to go up, you don't have to go down, you, have to go, you don't have to slide in. Your, stick, your, teeth, your feet does not stick in the mud. No such thing. It became a much like a floor. And the water that went to the side became like a real wall. Mamash a wall, clear wall, like a glass. Sheneemar ve'ayam bakata lifneem. The height of the water went above the land. We didn't have to go under. We walked in the level of the ocean, of the Red Sea. Ve'ayavru betoch ayam bayabasha. We're walking in the water, but in a clear, dry land. So we thank Hashem twice. One is that he cut the Red Sea and opened it up. And second is that he made us walk without efforts. We don't have to go, we have to go down and we, have to, we don't have to climb up. So that's why we're thanking him very much. Now, there are three special advantages. Elu shalosh ma'alot tovot. Ilu natan lanu et mamonam. Hashem gave us all their wealth, but did not open the Red Sea, meaning the Red, the Red Sea would become like ice, like wall, but we had to go and climb. Dayenu, also good, at least we get saved. If we opened the Red Sea, but did not let us go b'charava, meaning when it wasn't dry and straight, also good. Meaning, we don't say if Hashem did not open the Red Sea at all. That's not an option. Of course it's not Dayenu. We will all be dead. We only say if Hashem would open us the water, not the way He did. He would make it a lot harder. It will not be dry. It will not be straight. It will not be on the ground level. Also good. At least we would try very hard, we would suffer for a few hours, and in the end we make it. So why are we thanking him extra for making it easy for us to walk? So one thing can take me out, but it can be very hard. So that's one thing. If Hashem brought us to Mount Sinai and did not give us the Torah, the whole purpose of going there was to receive the Torah. If someone take you five miles to a well, what's the purpose of going to the well? To drink water, right? Reminds me I have to drink water. But if you, I took you now an hour walk, and we arrive all the way to the well, and then I do not open the cover of the well with my key. Why did you bring me all the way here? It would be better off not to bring me all the way to the water and not letting me drink. So we say to Hashem, if you took us to Mount Sinai and did not give us the Torah, also good. Why? 
What are we worth without the Torah? The Gemara says, The Gemara is Eruvim. If we wouldn't get the Torah, we would be worse than the animals. We would have to learn from the cat and the roosters how to behave. So the question is, if we wouldn't get the Torah, we would be like animals. So what good is that? The answer is, Rabotai, when we arrived to Mount Sinai, we were in the highest level of unity ever in a Jewish nation. Everyone was so united. Am echad belev echad, like one heart. So, since the purpose of giving us the Torah is to unite us, to make us into one, we already achieved it. We arrived to Mount Sinai, and everyone is united together with love and harmony and peace. So, when Israel be'achdut, when the nation of Israel is in unity, then the Shekhinah is among us, the spirit of Hashem. If there's no unity, I don't have to show you what's happening. You see it every day. When the Gaon Mivina was four years old, he was learning Chumash and Prophets, Nevi'im, for many hours. His parents was, were worried about his health. They said, go, go, Eliyahu, go play with the kids. They play ball outside, go. He came out and he saw the kids playing seesaw. You know seesaw? It's an old game, already 200 years old. He came right back in and went back to the books. His mother said, what happened? He said, I don't want to play this game. She looks from the window, she sees Cecil. Ruben is up, Shimon is down, Shimon is up, Ruben is down. So she said, why, you don't like this game? He said, no, it's not a Jewish game. So she said to him, why? It's four years old. I don't want any game that in order for me to be up, I have to bury my friend down. That's not a kosher game. Find me a game that both of us go up. Not that I go up and bring him down while I go up. In four years old, he was already understanding certain things that people seven years old don't understand. How can I play such a game? Hashem gave us their money, as he told Abraham Avinu that that's what's going to happen when we come out. We clean them out. They are empty now. Now Hashem took us in the Red Sea, Bacharava, and drown them. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu saved us from our enemies that come to kill us, He doesn't destroy our enemies until He shows them the salvation of the Jews that they torture so much. Hashem could kill them before. No, no. I will keep you around to show you how I save them from you and what I'm going to give them. And after you saw it, then I'll clean you out. You understand? Meaning, when Mashiach comes, Hashem won't clean all these anti-Semites right away. First, he would keep them around to see that Mashiach came and the Jews building the temple and all that. Then he will take care of all of them. First, to show them what the Jews are receiving and what they lost. אין הקדוש ברוך הוא מעבדם מן העולם עד שיראו בתחילת 
מתחילה בגאולת ישראל וברוממותם. Until they see the Jews going up, that's when I shall destroy them. Like the Romans, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. First, the Jews will come out of Egypt, then I will wipe you all out. You understand? First I'm going to show you, and then when you get the point, then I'll take care of you. שידעו כי השם הוא האלוקים, that everyone will know before they died who does it to them. There's no nature, there's no coincidence, and there's no, nothing is random here. Same thing in the salvation of Egypt. First, he saved the Jews. He opened the Red Sea. The Egyptians are shocked. Look, what's going on? Wow, they're going up. The Jews passing. The army of the Egyptians is drowning. Right? Same thing with Amman. A man was not hung before he had to take Mordechai on a horse. It could have been the other way around. First, Hashverosh killed a man. And after that, Mordechai is on a horse. No, no. First, you prepare the tree for Mordechai. Then you will make Mordechai walk in the streets of Shuchan and announce. And after that, I'll take care of you. This is how it goes. So now we can start the lecture. I have some water. Don't worry, we finish in a minute. And we'll finish with that. What is... So Hashem built to us the temple, the Bet HaMikdash. Sheneemar, Mikdash Hashem konenu yadecha. The temple of God were made by His hands. Metaphorically. Who made the temple? The Jewish people? The workers? Or Hashem? Who made the temple? In the temple there were many miracles. They used to carry the Aaron Abrit. Actually the Aaron was carrying them against the law of gravity. There a lot of things that were happening. But who really built it? Shlomo HaMelech hired thousands of workers and they work day and night. Orodus renewed the temple. They work day and night. Herods. But when the third temple will come, will we have to build it? No. no. Or it will come down directly from Shamayim? Even though it will come ready from Shamayim, we will still have to do something. But you should know that whatever we do, we won't be able to do it on our own without the assistance of Hashem because it's very complicated to build the temple. Moshe couldn't do it. Hashem had to show him and teach him. It was not easy. You understand? And the purpose of the temple is to repent all the sins of the Jewish nation. Kiata, today we don't have a temple. How do we make tshuva? How do we make repentance today? We don't have the temple. Well, there's no way to do tshuva. There is a way. You regret, you're ashamed, you make confessions, you Yom Kippur, you give charity, you're not repeating the sin, Hashem forgives without the temple. So what do we need the temple? Why do you need this? It's a headache. Sheep, goats, sacrifices, this, fire, trees, so much work. Why? I can do hocus pocus. I'm sorry, forgive me, I'm, I'm ashamed. Yom Kippur, I fast, give some nice checks, finished. No? So what's better? The last 2,000 years without a temple? Or the days of the temple? Day of the temple, if you want to do tshuva, you have to bring a sacrifice. 
And it was very difficult. You have to go all the way from the north of Israel to Jerusalem with your donkey on the mountains. It takes weeks to get there and to come back to your house. Wow. You don't go into your BMW in one hour you're there. It was a different world. So maybe the temple is a burden. Why are we praying 2,000 years for a temple? If we can do one, two, three and do tshuva. There's a difference between tshuva with the temple and tshuva without it. Today, when Hashem forgives the punishment, the sin is still registered in our file. We go to the world of truth, it's a very big embarrassment. We have a list of all our sins. But when we did tshuva with the sacrifice back in the time of the temple, lo nish'ar roshem klal me'avonot. It was erased in such a way that nobody can even know that you ever made those sins. The Ari Kadosh told us today that there is a way also to, to erase every impression of the sin. Is when you cry. When you cry, <laughs> well, I was wondering why he's not coming in. He gives a lecture outside. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Ariya, and we, like I promised, we finished. So, when the Ariya Kadosh said, when the Ariya Kadosh said, there's a way, there's a way to erase it also. It's one way. You cry when you do tshuva. You take the tears that you have and you smear them on the forehead like this and it erase all the impression of all the sins so when you die you go up to Shamayim there's no way to know the sins that you did and you repent repented it's not there nobody knows you come to the court of heaven it doesn't exist if you just do tshuva they see but they cannot judge you for that because you did tshuva but it's a big embarrassment your file was just revealed you understand? Okay, you have immunity. The president gave you immunity. But now when I see your file, I know what crimes you did. I cannot do anything to you because the president gave you immunity. But I know what a monster you are. Or you used to be. Right? I don't look at you in such a great eye. But when it was deleted completely from the file, nobody knows. How can you achieve that when, you, when your heart is broken and you cry, I'm, I'm sorry, Hashem, forgive me, ta, 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 ta. You take the tears, you erase it, you put it on the forehead, and you erase the impression of all the sin. We finished the fourth lecture about the Agadah. We still did not go halfway through, but we have at least now enough what to discuss. Take from the four lectures, make yourself some notes. Don't forget, please, to do cancellation of the chametz one Thursday night after we check the chametz in the house and in the cars and in your office. If you have another house, make sure you nominate someone to do the bdika for you. And then on Friday morning, you collect all the chametz, you take it, you burn it, and then you do the cancellation of the chametz. It's the most important thing in the preparation to Pesach is the cancellation of the chametz. It's not enough to hide it in a basement or somewhere, no. If it's in your property and you still own it, doesn't matter, you hide it. 
every second it's three sins from the Torah multiplied by eight days. Millions of sins. Either you sell it to a goy, you go to the rabbis in the synagogue tomorrow around 7, 7, 10, all the rabbis are in Mincha, they have forms, fill up your address, write down what chametz you're selling and the value of the chametz. You nominate the rabbi to be a messenger to sell your chametz to the goy. If you don't have any substantial chametz, meaning cheap, some flour, pretzel, just get rid of it. Either give it to the cleaning lady or burn it. But if you have expensive bottles of whiskey, vodka from wheat and stuff like that, you don't want to ruin it and destroy it. No problem, sell it to the goy. You cannot keep it. Every chametz is stayed by you and you did not sell to the goy, you can never ever enjoy it for eternity. You must destroy it after Pesach. Not allowed to serve it to the guest or give it as a gift. It has to be destroyed. That's why you gotta be very careful to sell the chametz the latest by Thursday. Because the rabbis will go to the goy and, and finalize the sale. Some rabbis will do it maybe Thursday night. Someone will do it on, on Friday very early in the morning. You know, after six days into the day, there's nothing you can do with this chametz anymore. Can't sell it anymore. You gotta be very, very careful with this. This is the most important thing, remember. Because once you cancel the chametz, automatically you got saved from every chametz that left by you. You understand? If you don't do the cancellation, Disaster. Remember this. Bezrat Hashem. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen v'amen. Anyone who wants to buy the books, there's still some left, not that many left. You can give it out.